up in college, college, college. Good, good, good. Was good, good. That's what you're trying to get at. Yeah, exactly. To Dizzy, if you look at it, (laughs) I need to do a PSA. We we are recording extra early this morning, and Diggles appears to not be able to use real words. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Predict the future, my brother. Predict the future. Do it right now. In the future, my retirement savings will grow nicely over an extended period of time. That's the lamest. Can you imagine... If someone came to you, you're a fortune teller. I'd be like, you are lame. You're a fortune teller. Somebody comes to you and they're like, put out your tarot cards, do all this stuff. And what you say is my retirement is going to grow. (laughs) Super lame. I think what's really lame is your question to start the show. No, because I'll predict the future right now. 62 to 10 victory today for University Mm -hmm. of Colorado. I need you guys to stay on the college football front. People are going to stop listening to the show if all we do is talk about college football. But since you opened the door, you were talking about the Colorado Buffaloes and the TCU Horned Frogs last week. Well, they made mm-hmm. some waves. Here's a stat from that game that I find absolutely mind-blowing. There's an interception. I think it was uh, middle of the third quarter. Travis Henry, who also played both ways and played like 140 snaps, which is unheard of. Made this interception. You see that, Diggles? Obvious. During that interception, he had closing speed of seven yards per second, which is the fastest closing speed recorded by real analytics of the nearly 9,000 defensive backs in the database. Is that not insane? Seven yards in one second? That's, I mean, it's pretty fast. I don't even know how else. It makes me think about Tyreek Hill. Like type speed, like that type speed, yeah. where it looks like somebody is speeding up the tape. You know what I mean? Let me say it this way, Douglas, because I I think you're not converting over here. That's let's go yards to feet. That's 21 feet in a second. No, I understand. you're not converting. You're, you're not nonsense. impressed. You're like, oh, it sounds fast. Yeah, I mean, I really, I think in hectares, defensive backs fastest ever. I think it's in insane. hectares. That's what my favorite part about the the press conference that that prime did at the end of it was he was all lackadaisical. He's talking about his son and the yardage he had. He's like, yeah, he played a pretty good game. You know, and what do you have? Like 500 yards? Like as if, <laughs> as if that's, that's not a record breaking type situation. It was pretty cool to see the team explode last week. Pretty cool to see. Absolutely. Shall we hop in? Let's do it. Okay. New York times had this piece this week, blew my mental models off the sheezy foheezy had to read this jeezy a couple teasies so i could understeezy what it was easy it's called americans are losing faith in the value of college whose fault is that paul tuff wrote this joint i'll tell you right now the author of these pieces is so important many times because if i had read this piece written by somebody different i might have been like you don't do me none son but because it was Paul, who, I, who just has credibility in the space, right? He writes about inequality, all kind of stuff. I was like, this must be a thing. This got to be a thing. I'm about to hit you with what the thing was. 
because I don't think you read this piece this week. It's a long article. And what it's about, because it talks about the value of college, which is what it, it gets to, but what it primarily is about is laying out this data from the Federal Reserve that has shown that when you look at the income premium of college, so how much someone earns if they do not go to college versus if they do, the income premium is still intact. You still make more money on yeah. average if you go to college. The net worth premium, so what they're saying, the wealth premium, has diminished rapidly over time. And they because did the this. expenses has gone up significantly without the revenues uh, matching. Correct. Yes, and but but when with the mind blowing this, and this is this is where I would have thrown this out. I would have thrown this out with a different author. They broke it out by demographics, and ethnicity was the one that really blew my mental models. It was saying that if you come from a non-white household, there's basically no difference in wealth accumulation if you go to college versus not. It the reason I say it blew my mental models is because in I'll say the anecdotal world. This doesn't match anything that I see. Yeah, me neither. But, but I think it's super interesting. I'll give you, can I just, can I lay out some facts for you right quick? A couple of facts here. So let me, let me back up a little bit and give some people some information about this. If you go about 10 years ago, the early 2010s and looked at the perception of college of folks in this country. They, he pulled from a few different sources here. One survey showed 86% of college graduates said that college was a good investment. 74% of young adults said college is really important. 60% of Americans said colleges and universities have a positive impact on the country, right? Basically, in summary, go back 10 years ago, people was like college, 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 right? I mean, you talk an animal house type stuff, people wearing college sweatshirts, up in college, 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 good, good, good. Was good, good, that's good. what you're trying to get at. Yeah, exactly. To dizzy, if you look at it, <laughs> I need to do a PSA. We we are recording extra early this morning, and Diggles appears to not be able to use real words. I can't finish <laughs> any of my words. I can start them. I can start them real good, like, but it's hard for me to finish them. So if you if you come to, to dizzy, we've we've now said that the college degree as a very important thing, has fallen to 41% of folks saying it versus 74%. That's less than half if you look at that mathematically. A third of Americans say that they have a lot of confidence in higher education. And Gen Zizzles, that's Gen Z folks who were born recently, I don't remember when the, the date is, but something like, I think it's after 2000 maybe, Gen Z folks, 45%, say that a high school diploma is all you need to ensure financial security. So headline, decade ago, college is the best thing that's ever happened since sliced bread and the invention of language. Today, what is college? Why is college? Why would I get college? So huge change in sentiment. Now let's look at the financial data. This wealth premium I mentioned, if you look at the expected wealth for four-year college graduates compared to high school graduates. Mm -hmm. The most fascinating part is, so what they did was, this is the Federal Reserve, St. Louis. What they did was they looked at people broken out into cohorts of a decade of birth. And they also broke this out ethnic ethnicity-wise. Mm -hmm. So if you were born in the 1940s, do you know what I'm talking about when I say 1940s? Do I ever, yeah, yeah. the 1940s. Do, do I? <laughs> Everyone's favorite decade. 
in the 1940s, if you were born, for folks that were identified as black, there was roughly a 250% wealth premium if you graduate from college versus just having your high school degree. If you go to people born in the 1980s, which is the last cohort of folks they looked at, so this people that are, let's call it late 30s, early 40s today, it's basically zero. And if you look at the if you look at people that were born in the decades that were between then and the 1980s, it kind of there was a downward trend. Um, so that was people identify as black. It's similar for people that identify as white, except that if you identify as white, you, there is still a premium. It's, it looks like it's something like 40 percent is the premium now. So it's not really so zero. The premium used to exist uh, for all ethnicities and then it's slowly declined for all ethnicities. But for certain ethnicities, you're talking about black like folks, zero. but uh, it's meaning that there's no benefit from simply a wealth perspective of attending college yes yes because you will still wake make more money over the course of your career but the upfront costs to actually make that excess return in investing terms you barely break even at the end of the day that's all we're saying right that's what they're saying and they the the reason why they couldn't get it's not conclusive as to exactly why so it's hypotheses as to why but you pretty much nailed it with I'll extend it out to one other thing. So there's one point that says if you net worth assets minus liabilities. Right? So if you go to college and you take out debt to go to college, then your net worth is lower because college has gotten so much more expensive. That's one part of it. There's another part that's saying that even if you did not go into debt to pay for college, but you use savings let's say, now you don't have savings and therefore you can't do other things that require that savings to build wealth in other areas. It's less likely you're going to buy a house. It's less likely you're going to start a business. Like that. That's that's what they're, the conjecture, right? They're putting out there is. Yeah, so can I jump in with some stupid questions? I find this fascinating. I'm not super surprised by it. Some Some colleges have almost become a country club from my perspective. And I say that because they seem really expensive, and it seems like much of the learning is actually happening through networking, and if you network with the right crowd, who's on the right path, who comes from a certain socioeconomic background, your chance of like the, the rising tide raises the level of all boats, and it's kind of like you go to get in the socioeconomic circle of people who can't attend the prestigious college and then everyone benefits right so that's one hypothesis where if you came from a strong socioeconomic background there's probably still some benefit there but those are also the people that might not need to take out debt to get there and might have family backing like family wealth for it to not be an impediment to them starting a business or buying the home or whatever else right so what I'm wondering, this is my maybe my stupid question, is like how much the socioeconomic breakdown there is. And then the tiers of colleges in this country, but also in the world, are drastic from the Harvards and Stanfords to the ones I don't even know the name of that still charge a premium, that don't have great job placement rates, that don't have great graduation rates. Like there are, I remember reading a, a book a couple of years back that talked about some of these colleges even though they're not officially for profit their graduation rates are so poor that 
they're effectively just robbing all the people that attend. And so they're selling something that doesn't actually, if you don't walk out with a diploma, your wealth does not increase in a meaningful way at all. So if you're not graduating folks and you're charging a premium, that's a whole different ballgame of an educational institution. And you're talking about schools where even the income premium isn't there, right? This is where you're not even making more money. So yeah. So in that circumstance, you have the costs, you might have the debt, but your income premium isn't even higher, so you don't have a chance. And, to, and to be really, able to make it up. in that circumstance, I think there's some argument to be made that it's actually a negative. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like your wealth actually goes down more than gets to the break-even point. Yeah. Now, here's the agreed with all that. Here's my thing: is so I read this, I got flustered, okay, bewildered, bedazzled even. And then I said, really? But for really though? Because you said you weren't surprised. I was surprised. So then I went and I read the the back end, of course, went and read like the research on the back end from the Fed. I went directly the to the study Fed. behind the article, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And it started making me feel a little bit better. So he, here's the, not better. I'm not saying that's great. The rising costs and all that is not a good thing. But it made me want more data, first of all, because I want to see what the difference in, if you take net worth, right? We said assets minus liabilities. I want to see what the asset difference is. I think that's really important because if you, let's say you buy a $100,000 house and you have $70,000 in debt on that house, mm-hmm. over the course of your life, there's the question of what ends up happening. Like, are you better off at the end of your life? Are your kids better off because you had that asset? is a like a in a really important question that is not observed in something like this. And so what I want to see is are these folks building up more assets such that maybe when they're 40, this is the case. But what does it look like when you're 60 or 70? And does that change their ability for the next generation to be able to have a more solid footing? This is this is the kind of these are the questions that started coming to my mind because I think that if you just look at net worth and you don't look at the assets and liabilities separated it, it doesn't paint the full picture of well-offness that wasn't the point of this article like if you go back to the title the title is americans are losing faith in the value of college whose fault is that and i think with that title americans are losing faith in the value of college bingo like that is that's true from what the survey data says it's not saying is college worth it well and sorry to interrupt when i say i'm not surprised on this I just know that the cost of college has been yeah. increasing at a rate much more quickly than the value that's being added. Like, I think that's a, yep. a known fact going back 20, 30, 40 years. Yep. So yep. eventually that catches up in the economics. That's the thing I'm not surprised about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. And I think maybe what I'm saying is I hope that the takeaway that people, when they look at this data, is not that college is not worth it. I hope that that does not end up becoming the narrative, the overarching narrative, and then it's more looking at what the what the specific data says and what might lie behind it. And I think it would be great for them to lay out the assets and liabilities separately as well as net worth, because if investment in future is not something that Americans are willing to make, that's bad, period. I could see that as a potential takeaway here. And it gets back to the conversation that we've had a couple times around here around, I'll call it the American dream and whatnot. It just like sentiment in this country has been going down so much recently. 
that that just we just need to spike that back up, right? We need to put a little, I don't know, scooting in the tootin'. I don't know what I don't know what, what to say here. <laughs> Light the fire. <laughs> we got to do that, and so I just hope that that's not the takeaway here. But I thought the data behind this was like super, super uh, fascinating. Can we, I'm gonna drop, I'm gonna drop a couple more little points yeah. that won't be surprising here, and then we can go on. So, I said um, if you break down the different ways basically that people paid for college in here, it's a non-surprising difference in what how big of a bet you're making. So as an example, um, like when I say bet, I mean, like picture this as if you're saying, I'm going to buy a stock, right? That kind of a bet. I'm going to buy a stock. Um, if I take leverage out on that stock, what's what are the chances I'm going to make money? If I don't take leverage, with like that kind of thing, that's what I mean as a bet. So if tuition's free and someone is definitively going to graduate, yeah, then there's a 96% chance, they say, that it's going to pay off for you wealth-wise. Well, and the 4% there is probably like you studied a major that is architectural underwater basket weaving in yep. the Pacific Ocean, like something mm -hmm. that just has literally no value, which is hard to pull off. Yeah, that's to your if you choose a business degree or a STEM degree, there's a 75% chance it's going to pay off. Okay. They didn't break out underwater basket weaving specifically, <laughs> <laughs> but let's put that at less than 75% chance of paying off. Okay, so if you're then paying for college, but there isn't a guarantee that you're going to graduate, mm -hmm. but it's still free, there's still a good chance it's going to pay off. I think it was like around 60%, something like that that's yeah, going to pay off for you. Yeah. The worst group, obviously, is if you go to college, you have to take out debt, so it's not free, and you don't graduate, that group is effectively... It brings down the whole nine yards around here. No bueno uh, for that group. So it's a it's you know it's mixed when you when you start breaking down the cohorts. Interesting article. We'll put on the Substack. Go and read it. Do not take away the fact that people should not go to college from this. Do take away the fact that college costs money, and you should think intelligently about how you pay for it, what you study, and what other debt you might have. To me, it's that simple. I just think. Not everyone needs a iPhone 15 Pro that's going to come out next week for whatever the 1200 bucks. Some people barely use their phone and they can get by with a $200 phone without issue. Be smart about what you're buying. It's just another thing you're buying. And if you're not stu studying for a STEM degree or a business degree or something that has clear market value, like I just think the consumer here needs to be more intelligent about what they're paying for. I was talking to uh, to someone about this article this week, and they brought up how there are people in their circles that had this mentality that's like, just go to the best school, no matter what it costs, make sure that you go to the best school and get as many degrees as possible. She's like, and I got, I got friends that have like law degrees and master's degrees and all this stuff, and then they don't even study law. And they end up in $150,000 yeah. in debt, and you're, you're working a job that didn't, that barely required the bachelor's degree in the first place. And so- that's an investment that wasn't as well thought through, maybe. Well, it wasn't. You... It wasn't an investment. It was yeah. uh, mindlessly followed advice. With yeah, I'm not throwing shade, but um, I think it requires a little more. I think in the '60s, you could have said, "Go to college. There's a 98 percent chance it pays off. Like just go mindlessly go." Yeah. I don't think we live in that world anymore. 
it's kind of it's it's kind of like the difference between saying if someone's like oh man investing didn't pay off for me you really shouldn't buy stocks you go well yeah you bought amc on margin like that's don't 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 do that and then say people should not invest in stocks <laughs> that's a the particulars of how you do it is potent that's actually that's actually exactly what we're going to talk about diggles so Ooh. this is me picking up breadcrumbs all week last last couple weeks and so how prevalent these issues are with margin and leverage i'm not sure but i'm seeing the breadcrumbs around i'm interested to see if you're seeing things so I'm seeing the stories of the people that bought their Airbnbs and turned them into short-term rentals, all of a sudden struggling to pay the mortgage because the rental, uh, the revenue is not what they expected. I'm seeing um, business owners in the small business space who had bought multiple businesses on margin, folding up shop and filing for bankruptcy. And I'm also seeing new ETFs coming out by people I really respect that employ leverage. And this is all basically just had my head explode this week. So have you ever heard, I, I promise I'll get to all those points in a roundabout way, but there's a new ETF came out this week by from Newfound Research and Corey Hofstein. Like he does really Not good familiar. research. Buddies with Cliff Asnes at AQR and like it has a podcast. Great guy. Know him just a little bit. So he came out with some return stacked ETF portfolios. And what return stacking means is basically they employ leverage to increase the amount of assets that you can own. And the simplest sense here, the most common one, it actually goes back to a fund from Wisdom Tree that takes a basic 60-40 portfolio and employs 50% leverage. So like you multiply the stock holdings by 1.5, you multiply the bond holdings by 1.5. For $1 purchased, you end up with 90% exposure to stocks and 60% exposure to bonds. Those are theoretically and most of the time completely, un not completely, but uncorrelated assets. And so that leverage typically won't come back to bite you. And the performance is great because you owned a little more of each of these assets over time, everything looks good. So I really dug into some of these ETFs this week because it's from people I respect and, and I know they know what they're talking about. Does that make sense just in setting up the background yep. there? Yep, makes sense. All right, these return stacked e ETFs, um, they're kind of cool. There's one that employs additional leverage for bonds and trend following. So that's like a, a really unique way to hedge against a downfall because the trend following piece and what i mean there if people aren't familiar is basically a momentum the, the trend can happen on the negative side or the positive side and then the bonds would just be employed with leverage as well so i'm digging into all these portfolios going hmm, these are it's kind of a cool idea right and looking at some of these performance Dougal's that that 90 percent, 60 percent one that wisdom cheer fund is average a compound angle return of 10.3% with the worst year being only a 25% drawdown. Best years at 40%. Like these metrics look incredible. Is that entry and year? I'm, when you say drawdown, you mean like entry year drawdown at 25% or a year ending uh, down 25%? Total year, ending year okay. drawdown. Uh, worst yep. max drawdown was 40%. This goes back to 1990, this back test here. 
And mm. uh, but if you compare that to the S and P, the S and P only had a nine point six percent compound annual return and a, and a max drawdown of fifty one percent. So it it almost looks like fool's gold, right? As you dive into these things, you go, "Wow, this is really incredible." But then you take a step back because I don't use leverage in my investing. I don't think you use leverage either. And so I'm just in the middle of this deep dive going, why would I need to employ leverage when sometimes you forget the reason why things like this come out at this point in time? So let's continue to talk about the wisdom tree, 90-60. And let's talk about what happened to stock market valuations since 1980. You went from a CAPE ratio of like seven to a, a currently a CAPE ratio of 30%. So stock market multiples have gone way up in that period of time for the back test. And interest rates went from 18% to currently 5%. And for those who don't know, when interest rates go down, the um, inverse of that actually happens with the performance of the fund. So that for went bonds. way up as well. Yep. Yeah, bonds. That's... Right. So you're you're really when you look at a back test that employs leverage on something like a 60-40 portfolio, the past 30 to 40 years is the absolute best time ever to do that. So of course the back test and the actual performance looks incredible. But we don't live in that world anymore. And my point with all this stuff, I mean, really all I'm trying to say is the leverage is not for me, but I think these products get released at a time when the back test looks great, but that's not the world we live in anymore. I, I just get leery about the Ooh. leverage piece. I don't really understand. Agreed with you on the leverage point. And also, I wouldn't say that back test looks incredible. You're, you're saying that the the performance, return performance is 10% versus 9.6%? On a yearly basis, Dougals. No, that, add, that hard... adds up. That adds yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, but... $50,000 on a initial 10k investment like it's no it, it adds up but i i think it's when, when you put those two things together like if someone says i use leverage and my relative returns are incredible i would expect more than a 0.4 percent premium is what i'm saying on something that is leveraged i think that that's the the combination that i would say because yeah, there's, there's a there's a risk to that you're be taking fair it's a 0.7 percent uh yeah but but also Diggles, this is not it's not it that's comparing to the S&P 500 which is 100% equities. Yeah, that's so true. That it's true. not a just straight like leverage. I mean, you can buy those funds. You could just yep. buy US equities and lever it. Anyway, so that's on the ETF side. On the small business failure side, I went back and forth with a the gentleman there about learnings. Um and effectively, it was, I took out too much debt. I tried to buy businesses too quickly. Yep. Not a surprise. You know, on the the short-term rental Airbnb stuff, like you already know the story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Those yeah. people did not walk in, uh, pay cash, get a really conservative cap rate, do those things. No, they, they did the same. They used a ton of debt. They probably did the minimum amount down. They looked at historically great periods where like Airbnb, Airbnbs as a business is still a relatively new thing. So people haven't ridden through cycles um, there. And I guess to me this week, that was where all my investing thoughts were. 
it was like, why are people so driven towards leverage? Because it just causes, you go back to the college article, right? Your probability of success of staying in the game is just drastically yeah. differently better if you don't have to take out debt to get back. And I think you just nailed it with the last two points that you made there. Uh, one, to go to the very last point, staying in the game is the game. If you can stay in the game for a long enough period of time, assuming all things that we've thrown out before, assuming that the U.S. remains a country that is a I don't know, vibrant, growing at you know 2% plus, whatever it is, if you assume all that, it's staying in the game is the game. And people forget that point. I think that's that's like maybe the number one most important point <laughs> that can be made. Yeah. The other the other point that you said here when you were talking about Airbnb is that people that Airbnb has yet to go through cycles. I would even alter that by one letter and say Airbnb is yet to go through cycle. <laughs> well, <laughs> for many of those owners i mean some of those owners are people that have owned hotels and yeah. other things. yeah 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 but but, but for but, airbnb yeah, specifically for average mom and pop that said this is great like this is my path to true wealth and it's easy and i can do it with other people's money it the the cycle is gonna really suck for them and that's i think that is a fundamental answer to the question around leverage for a lot of people again not for everyone the people have gone through cycles many cycles that's that's on them but for the folks where their experience is basically from march 2009 which was the last real bottom mm -hmm. until last year everything goes up into the right leverage the crap out of everything you have zero percent interest rates on a time period where assets are going up into the right yes why would you not use leverage during that time period because you're going to lose your house, Dougals. That's why. But, but you can't. You can't lose a house. You can't lose a house between March 2009 and last year. You can't lose a house. You know, I mean, this, this is this is people are basing going back to the reversion to the mean conversation. Not not like that exact point, but just saying that when people's own means is that time period. Yeah. Yeah. You leverage everything. It's like a leverage everything, everything. Like, why would you not? But that's no, not because I mean, so, it's not reality is the answer. The answer is because yeah. that's not the reality. That's one cycle. My my thinking here is um is always has always been conservative. And I'm happy send us listener mail to tell me that I'm wrong. Um, especially relating to the return stacked ETFs. There is quality research and really smart people behind those. And I know a lot of very intelligent folks that are super excited about some of these those offerings. That's why I dug into it this week because I was going. I've seen so much positive buzz from people I really respect. And I think in the right situation, if you know exactly what you're investing in, it could make sense for you. But I don't think it makes sense for me because I don't, I'm not ready to use leverage in that way. Certainly not for a, a big chunk of my portfolio. And it just feels, it feels pretty complex. It's no longer like, making the simple investment that you think is below its intrinsic value, waiting for it to go above its intrinsic value, selling and rehashing. It's an entirely different ballgame. And I want people to be aware of that anytime leverage enters the equation. You got to stay in the game, period.
Okay, can I wrap this with a series of quickity hitties? Yeah. First and foremost, two things about cars. One is cars are becoming more expensive. We done talked about cars a whole bunch of times here. Cars are becoming more expensive in this country. The the thing that there's this PBS uh, article that I read. And the thing that actually hit me here is not the point that cars are more expensive. Because I was like, yeah, sure. And it talks about how people are buying more SUVs because they just like to sit higher. I was like, yeah, sure. Americans are weird. The thing that caught me off guard was that it said there's only one car that's priced under $20,000 at this point. Maybe I read that a little bit wrong, but I was like, hold on, what? And it's the, and, and ironically, it's the Mitsubishi Mirage. So the, the one car that's under 20K is a Mirage. <laughs> so there's that. That's, that. that's what threw me off. The other point around cars here, that's point number one. Other point around cars here is that now that we have cars that are effectively computers that are going along the road, that privacy, it's it's the the most invasive privacy debacle of a generation. My words, no one else's. Mm-hmm. They collect, I hadn't thought about, I mean, it's obvious, but it's something I hadn't thought about as much as all the data that cars collect without you consenting to it. And as I'm reading this piece, I was reading something in Verge. As I'm reading this piece, about it i went oh yeah it does collect that so it's everything from these are going to be obvious but how fast you're driving when you turn the steering wheel where you're going what apps you're using like it's all that type of data as well and then there's the data within the data so things like your name your income right stuff that i wouldn't think that a car sexy time i don't know how many times sexy time needs to come up here but it collects information about sexy time this is it's Ow. it's like <laughs> don't, don't don't even ask it just does the it's kind of bewildering to me like the again when when thinking about it, it's kind of obvious because the, the other the thing i hadn't thought about is that there are cars now that have apps that you can download for your car you know you can like lock your car start your car and yeah, you by can downloading your drive over to pick you up what yeah we can, whatever it can go to the grocery store. You can do whatever. Your cars can yeah. do anything these days. It can't do that. But the the thing is that when you download that app, you've now downloaded an app to your phone. And when you download an app to your phone, that app can collect data from your phone about you. I hadn't, like I hadn't thought about that point. And so now the car company has the information that is getting from the car itself, the information that is getting from your phone, and consenting to that. Is something that isn't necessary, according to uh, what's been enforced so far. I hadn't thought about all that. Pretty interesting to me. It's probably not going to stop me from doing anything, but I hadn't thought about it. Well, think about the bargaining plat- power that, let's use Tesla as an example, has. You go buy a Tesla, you spent uh, forty to $80,000 with a conscious choice to say, I want this thing and so then when you hit download the app and the the screen comes up that says we collect seven thousand pieces of information about you including like when you use the restroom you just go yes because you just bought the car like you just yeah you just yeah. made a very expensive decision to say that's what i want to drive without thinking about the privacy concerns there's huge negotiation power 
to collect whatever they want. And I'm sure there's value to have that information for the next sale or for the subscription product they're trying to sell you. So it's yeah. an interesting conundrum. Fascinating. And I want to I want to go back to the sexy time comment because your question was the question that I had. How was the question? And two times in this article, it mentions collecting this data, but doesn't, it just kind of like says it and then moves on. There's one that says, so one line, both Nissan and Kia are noted to allow the collection of information regarding user sex life. And then it just goes on. I was like, how? Then there's another, there's another, there's another uh, piece that says Mozilla, the Mozilla foundations who ran the study. Mozilla found that numerous car companies collect sensitive user information like photos, immigration status, and even sexual activity. And then it just goes on. I'm like, uh, how? <laughs> like, how? But, now, <laughs> talk to me about, uh, again, I'm, Tesla's the easy example. I think there's like 15 cameras co- recording at basically all times. Like yeah, yeah, even, yeah. If, yeah. even if you're parked and someone like bumps into you, I think the cameras turn on to try and figure out who is messing with your car. How much of that data is recorded and stored forever? Yeah. It, did it go into any of the, that? Uh, like the length of time that it's held? Yeah. I didn't I didn't read anything there. It might be in the you know the full report that I didn't read from Mozilla, but yeah. it didn't go to anything like that. All right, my last quick hit. This is something you sent over to me, and it just follows up on what we talked about last week with regard to NVIDIA and our boy in the apron, Jensen. Here's what the tweet says, but I can't think that this is fully the case. The timeline just doesn't seem right. The tweet says, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang yesterday was awarded 89.1 thousand shares of NVIDIA stock at a cost of $4 per share for a total cost of $356,000. He sold the shares for a total of $42.83 million, giving him a profit of $42.47 million. The part that I'm like can't quite be right is that he was awarded the shares yesterday and also sold them yesterday? <laughs> no, he was clearly awarded the shares a long time ago <laughs> yeah. at a strike price of four bucks a share when we're still in the 400s, right, Douglas? Yeah. I mean, this is where business ownership and working at the executive level of a large company is just can be mind-blowing, right? I, I'm pretty sure I can work hard my whole life. I don't think I'm going to have shares vest at that value. It's, it's it's just it's wild pretty wild right? it's wild uh just another day in the office for jensen and then um maybe you have it in front of it you know, but that what he sold and for 40 million ish dollars like is is such a small percentage of the actual shares he yeah. holds i mean he yeah. has millions upon millions of shares so if he's smart he'll be jumping more like he's Again, he's clearly smart. There's a reason he's selling right now. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, good for you, Jensen. Good for you. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Uh, hit us for listener mail, skippydougals at gmail.com. If you are employing leverage in an incredible way that's fail safe, I'd love to hear about it. I'm sure you are. <laughs> we love reviews and we love for you to share the podcast with a friend. So hit a review on your favorite podcasting service. And uh, there's also premium subscriptions available to support the show, skippydoogles.supercast.com. Thank you, everybody. Peace.